Hello and welcome to episode 46 of the Crash and Ride podcast. I'm Patrick Ferguson. I'm your host. As I record this, it's just a few days before Christmas. I know a lot of us have gone home to see family. Some of us have stayed put. Some of us aren't celebrating Christmas. Some of us are celebrating different holidays. And, uh, you know, I know that Christmas can be difficult for people who suffer from depression. There's a lot of expectation put on people this time of year. And a lot of us, especially musicians, are made kind of acutely aware of um, our economic precarity. Uh, I know that there's times when I've sort of drifted into the Christmas season with uh, I had enough money to pay my own bills, much less like buy a bunch of gifts. And um, often, you know, you get home and you feel like your whole family's looking at you like, well, look who came home with nothing again this year. And, you know, I also know that like family drama often ramps up and that like fallow period between Thanksgiving and Christmas where it can really just hit a crescendo for people right about now. And um, so this is the uh, first annual Crash and Ride Not a Christmas Special episode. <laughs> I definitely want you to feel like you can put this podcast episode on and not feel like you're being forced to have good cheer. Um, I, I want you to feel okay with the fact that maybe you're not feeling 100% this time of year and um, that you don't feel so goddamn jolly. If this is your first episode of Crash and Ride, Crash and Ride is a long-form interview podcast where I talk to musicians who survived anxiety, depression, and addiction. The idea was that if we could share openly and honestly about the suffering we'd experienced, that we might be able to identify our own suffering and the sufferings of others, and that we could start to work together to be happier, more productive musicians. As I say on the show just about every week, no one is going to take care of us but us. And I felt like through an open dialogue about what it was like, what happened, what we're like now in our journey through depression, that we could all start to get better and maybe make a real change in our little corner of the world. Just about every week I talk to a new musician and we talk about their journey and, and you know how they got better or where they're at, even if they're not better. Um, but I end up just about every interview by asking 10 questions. Um, and the first question I always ask is, what is the fondest memory you have of a meal that you've had? And I compiled a bunch of my favorite of those answers into a Thanksgiving special just a few weeks ago. And this week I'm focusing on the fourth question that I always ask is, tell me about a time you received an act of kindness from a stranger. I know it's tough for some of us to be happy this time of year. Um, and, you know, it's been just a little over a year. Um, if I can get a little personal for a second, like the reason I started this podcast was because I needed something to do after I got laid off from an IT job a year ago. And I've played a lot of music since then, and I've done a lot of podcast interviews, and I've traveled all over the country. And it's been, in many ways, one of the best years of my life. But it's also been one of the least financially affluent years of my life. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, kind of landing in the middle of the holidays, you know, without a bunch of stuff to give other people. But, like, I'll admit that I was kind of taken with this meme I saw on social media the other day. It said, um, look around you. All that stuff used to be money, and all that money used to be time. And the one thing I have had a lot of this year is time with my family. You know, when I wasn't traveling with um, whatever band I was out with, you know, I was picking up my kiddo from school. And um, the other day she said to her mom, I was out of town for some reason, I can't remember what it was, and she said, what are you going to make me as a snack after school? And her mom was like, well, I don't know, what do you want? And she says, well, my daddy always makes me something delicious after school. So her mom told me that as I was like kind of – kicking rocks about being a little broke this year and she's like look your your daughter doesn't care that we've had to spend a little bit of our savings this year but 
She does care about that that meal after school. It means a lot to her. And this show and the amazing people that I happen to be surrounded with most of the time um, always remind me to be grateful for what I have and not anxious about what I don't have. And um, I know it sounds uh, maybe a little simplistic if you're down in the funk and you're like, I don't have any of what I need and and um, nothing but stress about the things that I, I, I can't get like health care or rent money or whatever. But I did notice that a lot of the happiest people that I've talked to in their recovery from depression when I said, tell me about a time you received an act of kindness from a stranger Almost all of them said, oh, man, so many times I've received kindness in my life. So, you know, here on the not Christmas crash and ride, I wanted to focus on that question, on gratitude, on kindness. And, you know, a lot of these um, anecdotes are interesting because the people, um, the strangers in these anecdotes often don't realize that they're changing someone's life. It's the simplest thing. I mean, just the simplest act like kept some of these people alive so as you're out there this holiday amongst a bunch of people who are trying to chase happiness through material acquisition remind yourself that you're just dealing with people in a tiny moment a tiny window of their lives and you don't know what they're swimming upstream against you don't know what heavy burden is laid across their shoulders and just the smallest act of kindness and i mean as you listen to these stories you'll realize that there were people who just did something as simple as speak to someone um, in a kind way when they were at their absolute worst moment in their lives, and it, it turned their life around. Just be kind. Just be kind. Before we jump into these conversations, I have a couple of quick announcements. Crash and Ride is brought to you in part by Greer Amplification. Greer Amp spills the best boutique effects pedals available. If you're looking for an overdrive, boost, fuzz, compressor, or tremolo that is rugged, road-tested, and at home, on stage, in the studio, or in your living room, Greer has a pedal for you. Nick and his staff strive to build the best products around with the best tone you've ever heard. They believe in their products, and they stand behind them, too, backing each one up with a lifetime warranty to the original owner. Each Greer Amps product is hand-built in Athens, Georgia, USA. Go to www.greeramps.com or visit your favorite music retailer today. Crash and Ride is also brought to you by Jittery Joe's, a local coffee roaster based in Athens, Georgia. They have a special espresso blend named after the podcast. You can get Crash and Ride espresso whole bean or ground in cans from our website. Go to crashandridepodcast.com slash store. There's also some great t-shirts there, the black and blue t-shirts with the Crash and Ride logo and the Loud Guitar Save Lives slogan on them. The logo was designed by our friend Scott Sosby, a graphic designer from New York City, a man of incredible talent and also just a generally lovely guy. Those t-shirts are $20 plus $5 shipping off the website, crashandridepodcast.com slash store. You know, I've done, I guess, over 40 interviews just in the last year um, for the show and I've traveled the country with different bands. I've played Fort Worth, New York City, Asheville, North Carolina, Johnson City, Tennessee, Austin, Charleston, Buffalo, Pittsburgh. I've seen a great big chunk of the country. I've also been there more days than not to pick my daughter up from school. It has been one of the best years of my life. I've made hundreds of new friends. I have strengthened bonds with old friends. I have rediscovered friends I haven't talked to in 20 years. And it has been phenomenal. One of my favorite new friends is John Howie Jr. He's a singer-songwriter from North Carolina. We have such a similar background and upbringing and taste in music that I, I cannot wait for us to get to hang out. I interviewed him over the phone just a few weeks ago. 
And his story about an act of kindness from a stranger is just fantastic. He was just a kid on his way to buy comic books and got shaken down by some local toughs who I imagine were probably, you know, all of 13 years old and um, lost his comic book money. And unexpectedly, a character rolled in to the story and just made it all right. And I just love the story. About a time you received an act of kindness from a stranger. I can happily do that. Um, so when I was a kid, before we moved out to the country and we lived in this neighborhood that, you know, to me really was, it was like going to war. It was not nearly as bad as a lot of people have it. You know, it wasn't like it was, it was inner city or anything like that. But the elementary school playground was right next to our backyard. It was lower middle class. Um, these kids, I had a friend that I was really tight with, um, named Bert Bridger, and we had bikes. And we were by bicycle about 10 minutes from a place called the Fast Fair, which was a convenience store. And back then, convenience stores carried comic books that were 25 cents a piece. And we loved those things. His family was really Christian, and I think his mom had just kind of put the hammer down and said, you have to read, like, Richie Rich and bullshit like that. But what we would do is go buy the comics, and he'd leave them at my house because my dad didn't care. You know. Um, so my father, we had enough to get four comic books apiece and tax, which back then, that was a lot. You know, it was it was well over $2.00. And we drove, we, we, we got on our bikes and we rode down to the fast fair and on our way there, I saw these kids that I knew were, were going to fuck with us. And they did. And Bert had already pulled out part of his money and they saw it. Okay. So they knocked us off our bikes. One of them rode my bike around for a minute and tried to kind of trash it. I mean, it was just brutal. It was just brutal, you know. Um, and they knocked us down and took our money. So we had no money. So, like, our, our egos are totally crushed, and we can't buy comic books. So we got up and walked our bikes up to the fast fair anyway because we could see it and just to kind of, you know, get our bearings. And this guy got out of a car. Uh, in the parking lot of this place, which held about four cars, pulled right up to it. And he was in a big kind of burgundy car, like Cadillac or something, and he got out, and he was an African-American guy, had a big long coat and a big wide-brimmed hat. And this was probably 1977, 1978. And I believe me, I had already had the comics in mind I was going to get. You know, I was going to get Spider-Man, uh, Incredible Hulk, a Marvel Comics guy. And we're just standing there, and he walks up to us, and he goes, uh, he goes, what, what happened to you boys? Those guys just knock you down? And I said, yeah, they knocked us down, and they took our money. My dad gave us some money to buy comic books with. And he went, it's tough. And there was this pause, and he pulled his wallet out and handed us a $5 bill. He goes, here you go, boys. Go get yourself a whole slew of comics. And we did. I never saw that guy again, and I had never seen him before that. 
Man, the brutality that older kids are capable of towards younger kids is so awful. And to have an unexpected advocate and intercessor on your behalf is so great. Um, $5 is all it took for that guy to make an indelible imprint on John Howie Jr.'s imagination for the rest of his life. Earlier this year, I also spoke to Susie Ulrey. Susie is the singer and guitar player for the Tampa band Pogo. Since um, around 2001, she's been sort of coping with the gradual decline of her physical capabilities due to multiple sclerosis. These days, I often see her. She's in a mobility scooter. In the early stages of this, she often used a walker or a cane. And um, she's amazingly buoyant and bright and optimistic and joyful despite all of that. I know that she experiences a lot of neuropathic pain and, and that there are times when she gets incredibly frustrated. And yet, every time I see Susie, she's smiling. And she's still an amazingly vibrant and brilliant performer to watch. Pogo is a great band. When I spoke to her, it was still a big secret, but they were planning a tour of Japan, and now that tour is completed. Apparently, it was a huge success, and I'm so happy for her. Um, she told me the story when I asked her about receiving an act of kindness from a stranger of a time when she had had a really scary uh, auto accident, and she was standing beside the highway, uh, leaning on her cane, and someone saw her and decided to help. At a time that you received an act of kindness from a stranger. Oh God. Um, 2001 or two, I can't remember which year. I had just been diagnosed. No, it was 2002, because we were living here. And I got into a car accident on the way to work um, on I-4, mm -hmm. there was no one else involved. It was just me. Right. The, was it related to your no. neuropathy? No. Um, the windshield, like the, the heat. The like, defroster. The, yeah, that I put on the back of the, you know, you throw it back in the back and you put it up to keep your car from getting hot. I can't remember right. what it's called right now. But it created. Oh, a, yeah. Not the defroster, the, the barrier, the sun barrier. Yeah. Yeah. The foil. Yes. Yeah. So it created a reflection so on the back of the window. So you got in the car and you forgot to take it down? Well, no, no it created yeah, no. <laughs> it was, But it was in the back right. behind the two seats. And I, it created a reflection on the rear, rear, on the rear window. And mm -hmm. I looked over my right to merge. And I thought there was someone there. But it was actually just the reflection. visor. Right. So I swerved to over... I overcorrected. And oh, I actually boy. spun 180 degrees. 360 would be all the way around. 180 would be halfway around. Halfway around. So I was facing I the was, wrong way. I was in the shoulder, but facing oncoming traffic. Did you hit the barrier or anything? There was no barrier. And my car was actually like up like this. Sort of off the road? I was up on, on the right side. So the driver's side was in the air. Oh, you, you, your car was resting on the door handles on the left side? Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. It sounds exciting. Um, what car was this? Was the Jetta? It was the Jetta, yeah. Um, and uh, there was someone, well, first of all, people immediately pulled over and set my car on on, end. on four wheels. Yeah. yeah. And then I got out of the car and I was kind of leaning against it because I had a cane then mm -hmm. and I couldn't walk very well. And someone was moving and had a U-Haul truck and they pulled over and they opened the back of the truck and they got a chair out so I could sit down. And they sat with me. That's and, amazing. Yeah, it was really, it was a really cool moment. 
um, and I felt very safe and protected, you know. Um, and Keith, I mean, holy shit! How how what an opportunity! You're driving down the road and you think that person needs a chair. I know it was totally <laughs> random. I just thought that was so special that someone just happened to have a chair and saw a woman who needed one. It's funny, I listen back to some of these older interviews and I think, man, I it took me a minute to learn not to talk over people, but um, I think I'm a little better about that now. Also, I'm really grateful for the mics that I have now. I think these are a lot better microphones. Just a few weeks ago, I talked to my friend Josh Hensley. Josh is the guitar player and singer in the band The Rutabaga, who are from the South Bend, Indiana area. And not all of these acts of kindness were done by strangers. Um, this one was from a friend of Josh's, but I thought it was so wonderful and so profound. When you consider that music doesn't really pay that well anymore, and when it does, man, there's this impetus to like put every extra penny towards something important, like savings or groceries or gasoline. Um, so sometimes you wait for years for that perfect instrument to come along, guitar, set of drums, a perfect amplifier or bass. And Josh, Josh had a friend kind of square that circle for him unexpectedly, and I'm, I thought it was really great. Yeah, I was was telling you earlier about when we went um, when we went out uh, west when we flew into Seattle and played those shows with with uh, Chung Antique, and um, I was I had never flown with a guitar before. I was really worried about that. I had seen some, I think maybe it was James Burns that had recent, uh, recently had a, the headstock broken off of one of his guitars uh, when he was flying with it. Does that ring a bell? I feel like that was around then. I'm not um, sure. James, yeah, is, uh, James is a PRF guy, for those of you who don't know what we're talking yeah. about. Is he in Police He's Teeth? Is that right? Great band called... He was in Police Teeth. He's in a great band now called Seminars. Yeah. Um, He's a really... Seems yeah. like a really good guy. Yeah. But yeah, I think I had seen that, that recently, that he had uh, had had flown with a, with a guitar and the headstock got broke. And um, so, I, yeah, anyway, I was really worried about flying with my guitar. And I, I played... Um, I play a semi-hollow body uh, electric, um, and up up till then, my main guitar it was it's a, a Diarmond, um, which is I mean it's not like a, a fancy guitar by any means, but um, I had asked uh, Charlie Zalian uh, from Chung Antique. Um, I was just kind of talking to him before before we flew out there, and I was like, hey. Um, I'm worried about flying with my guitar. You don't happen to have, uh, to know anyone or have something similar to this that I might be able to use while we're out there. And, uh, he's just like such a sweetheart. And he's like, man, my, uh, my backup guitar is a semi hollow body. And, um, I think it's probably pretty similar to, to yours. And, um, just yeah consider it yours for the tour um you know he's he, like sent me the info and of what it was it's like a, a dipinto d-i-p-i-n-t-o uh which is like a a smaller um a smaller uh company in philly uh that makes them and uh so 
so yeah, so we, we got out there and, um, we kind of, uh, got situated and went to, um, the, their practice space, uh, so I could, uh, try out the guitar and he was letting me use a couple pedals, uh, too. So I just immediately was like, yep, yeah, that sounds great. That'll be, that'll be perfect. And, um, so we got back from, from that tour and, uh, like, like a week later, I got home from work and, uh, there was this big box on the porch and I'm like, what is this? And so I like walk, you know, took it inside and I think Emily was out back gardening. Um, and I opened it up and, and <laughs> he had mailed me, he, he had sent that guitar, um, to me and there was this that's incredible yeah this beautiful card inside and and you know it was just like hey yeah i after the first show i i knew that um that you that this was your guitar and um you know i didn't i wanted to send it with you when you guys left but i i didn't want it to give you a chance to to tell me no um, <laughs> which is just so i mean it's uh yeah it's just so such a charlie thing but um yeah he I, I i i love that guitar so much um you know and he had it was just he had him and his dad had gone out together and like found it at a pawn shop you know, I mean, there was this whole like story behind it, but he and like insisted that it had just been um, collecting dust because he hadn't really been using it that much, and he had forgotten uh, what a cool guitar it was. Um, but yeah, that's that's become uh, that's become my my main. There's so many things I love about that story. I mean, the kindness of a good friend who recognizes like this guitar needs to be with that guy and just gives it to him. This is an amazing and brilliant thing to do. One of the other things I love about that story is I love a Japanese semi hollow body, like a Diarmond or one of the sixties Univox ES three thirty five copies. I love playing those guitars. I don't know what it is about that bridge style that makes the action so slinky. And I feel like I can actually play guitar, which I realize is flattering myself, but God, nobody enjoys it more than I do. And I need to check into these Depinto guitars because it sounds like Josh has fallen in love. You know, I think sometimes the most vulnerable we are as musicians is when we're thousands of miles from home and touring on a shoestring. Like some of the people I've talked to on the show are really, they've done really well for themselves, but a lot of them, you know, uh, are out there on a wing and a prayer, you know, in a van that's maybe of dubious mechanical quality. And, um, we find ourselves by the road. I've I've replaced an alternator in a van once on tour in the shadow of the Darlington Motor Speedway at an auto zone, like elbows deep in the engine trying to get an alternator off. And I know it's happened to hundreds of other musicians that I know. And, um, you know, one of my favorite stories from the show, Erica Ricks and the unbelievably phenomenal drummer from the band Motherfucker and one of my favorite people in the world and easily one of the best interviews I've ever done for this show. 
uh, told me a story about one time when they were bombing trying to get home in time to play a show in Atlanta from somewhere in Ohio, and their van died, and they had um, a really fortuitous encounter with a, a young guy working at an O'Reilly Auto Parts. You've received an act of kindness from a stranger. Um, I've had a lot. Uh, I've had a lot of incredible acts from a lot of acquaintances, friends, and like there. I, I couldn't like I could spend two hours trying to think of people to thank for m- me just sitting in this room right now, just existing at all. But I'm not going to do that. <laughs> okay. We were on we were on tour. Uh, we were playing some shows. And we played in Cleveland, and it was awesome. This is motherfucker. Uh, we we played with Gold Mines, some really good friends of ours. We had a great show, and then we had this really awesome idea that we were going to book it all the way back to Atlanta from Cleveland and play a show with uh, Creepoid at the Earl. We're like, yeah, fuck yeah, we can do it. Because <laughs> at that time, we were doing insane drives like that. We're just like, fuck yeah. it. <laughs> Party on, Wayne. You know, <laughs> let's do yeah. it. So. Uh, we're driving back from Cleveland and we get about an hour and a half outside and the van just breaks down. We're like, damn it. And we, we made it so far like that, you know, Amandy's van is a, is sturdy and, 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 uh, my home away from home. But, (laughs) but it broke down and we're like, ah, hell. And it's a Sunday (laughs) and we're in, uh, oh, I actually wrote it down so I wouldn't forget ashland ohio which is not akron ohio mm-hmm. which is what i thought it was at the time <laughs> uh <laughs> and we're literally nowhere we're nowhere in ohio and i'm like fuck well so i'm walking up the highway it's really early in the morning because you know we're trying to get all the way back to atlanta in time for sound check or whatever um walking up the highway <laughs> and uh at some point uh erica strout runs up and is like oh here take this and she gives me a little pocket knife like just in case i'm like it's eight in the morning i'm fine you know whatever it's cool and i'm like all right whatever and all of a sudden a cop rolls up and he's like hey you want to ride and i was like as long as i'm in the front seat (laughs) and he's he's laughing he's like yeah um i saw uh the van back there you guys you guys okay and i'm like yeah it broke down i'm just trying to walk up to the next exit so i can ask somebody where like a you know uh, mechanic or something is and he's like well i've got uh got some buddies back there you know talking to them and i'm like okay it was weird i was just like okay what do you what do you mean talking to them you know he's like but i'll drive you up there's an o'reilly auto parts at this exit and we'll we'll, we'll i'll drive you up there and i was like okay cool whatever i just took it I'm like well we'll see where this goes and the whole time i've got like the knife in my pocket and i'm thinking about it and i'm like yeah <laughs> what happens now and of course my mind's racing into like what if this cop is corrupt and i have to stab him you know like or, <laughs> or like something insane or like what if he finds out that i have a concealed weapon or something like stupid shit you know mm-hmm. shit that would never happen <laughs> so we get up to the uh i get up to the o'reilly auto parts and i'm talking to them um and i'm like hey you know is there uh, tow truck available around here or whatever and I, I finally get in touch with um, Mandy and Erica again and they're like where the hell are you and I'm like oh I'm just up at the next exit the cop dropped me off I figured he would radio his buddies and get it back to you and she's like no that's not what happened they thought that okay so <laughs> a concerned Ohioan saw Erica running out of a van towards me and thought 
oh, there's a small woman running out of a van. Maybe they've been kidnapped. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Some concerned citizen called the cops <laughs> because they thought we'd all been kidnapped. <laughs> oh, for God's sakes. <laughs> so Mandy and Erica, they're like, blink twice if you're okay and shit. <laughs> and they're like, no, we're just a band on tour. We're just women. We have a van. Like, straight up, that, like, you don't think about this shit. That's hilarious. It's, it's hilarious, but it's also kind of sad that that happened at all. But also, like, way to go. Ohioan, like yeah. thank you for giving a shit because yeah, yeah. we you know somebody could have been saved that day except that there was no problem at all yeah so you know we get the van towed uh up to the o'reilly auto parts and we're talking to them and they're like okay this is what she i don't even remember what was wrong um they're like this is what you need you're in a tiny ass little town in ohio no one is open you're yeah, not gonna be Sunday. able to yeah. yeah no one's gonna be able to help you until you know 8 a.m tomorrow and we're like fuck and we're like, well, we could book it. You know, we could ask somebody in Cleveland to drive an hour and a half and come get us. We don't want to do that. Or we could find like a weird motel in this tiny town or something. Yeah. And we're like, there's no way we're going out of here. So we tell, you know, folks in Atlanta, and we're like, fuck, we're not going to make it. Which, you know, that's okay. It happens. But then all of a sudden, there's this, you see these two guys in the O'Reilly Auto Parts and they're like kind of whispering to each other. And they're like, and they're like, follow us outside. And uh, the manager of the place is like, okay. So we're not allowed to help people with their cars. <laughs> but this is actually a really simple thing to do. Was um, it an alternator? I don't remember. Yeah. I really truly don't remember. It's been too long. And also, like, <laughs> my brain just ain't what it used to be. Right. It's full, full of too much bullshit. <laughs> I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't remember all the good details about things like that. It might have been. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> Alternator's pretty simple. He's like, I can do it. It's going to take me like an hour, but like, it's got to be super DL. Like you can't let anybody know that we're doing this. And we're like, fuck yes, absolutely. So this young dude, he's probably like, you know, uh, he's probably like 20. Mm-hmm. He's like, I can do this. And so we buy the parts and he just fixes the fucking van. And so we're talking about it. And we have a little, we did well on that tour and we have a little bit of extra money and we're like, we would have had to get a hotel. We would have had to do all this stuff. We would have had to pay a mechanic. You know, there's all these things we would have had to pay for. We're like, fuck it. Let's just give that guy a hundred. We'll give a hundred dollars for his 30 minutes of work and being just a kick-ass person, yeah. total stranger. We give this kid a hundred bucks and he just starts crying. What? He just loses it and starts crying. And he goes, I'm working three jobs right now. You know, uh, I'm trying to pay off this thing and I'm just like, I'm in school and I'm working three jobs and I'm just, I, I honestly thought I was going to get evicted and I needed to make all this money and I've been trying to pick up extra shifts. I'm actually going to work a double at Dunkin' Donuts tomorrow, but this money is going to put it over so I can afford my rent this month. And we're just like, that is the most serendipitous, like, it was so great. And he was just so thankful and he hugged all of us and he was just so just genuinely like you just did this nice thing you didn't expect to get paid for it you were just helping some some southern ladies in a van that might have been abducted in Ohio. <laughs> you know what i mean it's like you're just being cool you're just being a nice guy you That's know amazing and i love that story so we gave them all like like t-shirts and shit and then we, we gave that kid a motherfucker. you know i was thinking about it as i listened to that when i say one of the best interviews i've done for the show i I'm not giving myself any credit for that. She's just such a, she has such a, a good heart. And well, I've, 
I've ranted and raved about how much I enjoyed interviewing Erica and just how how highly I esteem her friendship. She is a truly remarkable young woman and you should go listen to those two episodes. I had to break it into two because we talked about a lot, covered a lot of ground, and I'm really proud of the work we did. Also, she's a phenomenal musician, and if you haven't seen her play drums, you have missed one of the great joys of of, of being a, a musician living in Athens, Georgia. To, that we're so fortunate to have a band like Motherfucker in our town is is saying something. That just unbelievably great band. Sometimes the the good fortune stories of touring aren't just about broken down vans and and um, like having someone bail you out of a shitty situation at a club or or you know not getting mugged or whatever. But like sometimes it's just as simple as somebody like showing you an act of kindness, like by buying you a meal and maybe throwing you a couple of bucks to make sure you're okay. Riley Walker had an experience like that on tour once um, when he was busking and um, somebody. Somebody said, hey, man, I remember when I was doing that, and and it helped him out. How do you receive an act of kindness from a stranger? Act of kindness from a stranger. Hmm. Act of kindness from a stranger. Um, I got a good one, actually. I remember being in Marfa, Texas on tour, and... Well, what the fuck is going on in Marfa? I don't mean to interrupt, but like, there's like a Prada store in Marfa. I, like, oh, it's just like a little town in West Texas that's been co-opted by artists from LA and New York. You know, it's it's very it's very in vogue. It's a cool mm-hmm. city. There's like a cool community there of artists and stuff. But yeah, you know, it's just it's an old like ranching town that's you know, I think some artists from the Lower East Side of Manhattan moved to in the '80s and kind of just built a community there of you know kind of a getaway and i, I kind of dig into this i don't under it's just baffling to me that like you would leave new york as an artist and, and go to west texas it just seems counterintuitive but maybe that's the point yeah it's just a getaway you know it's completely foreign to anything anybody on the coast knows you know mm-hmm. the middle of texas where the nearest big city is three and a half hours away el paso mm-hmm. you know it's uh just kind of a a getaway i guess and it is it is fun you know being there there's like all sorts of great programming and stuff and i was busking at the time because we had to busk for money Mm -hmm. gas and a stranger gave me a hundred dollars and took me out to dinner and gave me a bunch of their old grateful dead tapes to listen to in the van and i forget this person's name this is probably 10 years ago now Mm-hmm. But I remember being like, I used to tour in your, when I was your age, but, you know, I'm just trying to give back because I remember somebody else set me up with dinner when I was busking on the street. And I thought that was amazing, you know, this sort of act of kindness for a stinky hippie on the street, you know, and it was, it was really, really heartwarming for them to open themselves up to me. That Riley Walker interview continues to be the biggest Crash and Ride episode of all time, which is interesting because I... I was only passingly familiar with his work, but then I mentioned to some younger millennial friends of mine that I was uh, kind of intrigued by the guy's Twitter presence, and they were like grabbing me by the lapels and shaking me and shouting, and that I needed to hear his work right now because he's such a phenomenal talent. But then, you know, he came on the show and opened up about his drug addiction and nearly being sexually assaulted and his suicide attempt while he was on tour solo opening for Richard Thompson, and it was just. One of the most 
honest and fearless interviews anybody has come on this show and done. I hold it up as a lighthouse to people who are struggling. Like that is an interview. I feel like if you're going to listen to one crash and ride interview, first episode 10 with Evan Rowe, my good friend who just laid his soul bare in his crash and ride interview. And then second Riley Walker. Cause I think that, um, it's, a uh, unexpectedly deep look at a guy who is unbelievably funny on social media, especially Twitter. He's got this like whip smart sense of humor uh, and a tremendous vulnerability that um, he's got a lot of insight and the fact that he is now like committed to take better care of himself and try to live to be a ripe old age, I think is going to be a gift to all of us. One of my favorite stories from this question is Patterson Hood's story about being robbed in New York City, which doesn't sound like the most auspicious beginning for a story about receiving an act of kindness from a stranger, but man, it it turns on a dime, and it just made me so happy. Patterson's story, I was literally on my feet. Like, you can hear me fade away from the microphone because I literally jumped up off the couch in excitement that this story was so great. Listen to this. Well, I've got a good one, a better one even. Uh, uh, you know, fans always have horror stories about playing New York the first time or second time or whatever. And in our band, we always had this, like, beautiful love affair with playing New York. We never had the bad stories that other bands had about playing New York, except the one time we played CBGB's, which we've been playing New York for several years by that point. And we did the show at CBGB's, and had the entire cliche happen. I mean, we got the terrible slot and we were treated like crap and we got gypped on the pay. And then we came out and our van had been broken into and, uh, and, uh, and we didn't have any gear in the van because we were on stage, but they, they, they took just whatever they could find, including my backpack, which had was full of notebooks of songs. Back then I wrote everything on notepads and I had, uh, all the songs that later became the decoration day album and the dirty South record were all in that backpack and it was all stolen. And I didn't know any of those yet. And I was fucking devastated, man. And, um, uh, about two weeks later out of the blue, we got a phone call and uh, I had a phone number, I guess, written on those notepads, and someone had found them and uh, tracked tracked down the number, got in touch with me, and the next time we played in New York, brought the notebooks back to me. That's amazing. Yeah. That's York amazing. City, they were like the, 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 the one bad experience we had in New York had that as a happy ending. I've got fucking goosebumps from that story. He, he, said, he, was, walk, he said he was walking down the sidewalk, and found the stack of notebooks sitting there on the sidewalk. Whoever stole the backpack, I guess, opened it a few blocks away. I was like, oh, what's this shit? Threw it down, kept the note, kept the backpack, and kept going. And just threw them down. Someone found them and goes, oh, man, this looks like this is something that probably means something to somebody. And went to the trouble to track me down and brought them to Brownies. We played Brownies the next time we were in town, which is where we usually played, which I loved Brownies. And, uh yeah. We were playing brownies, and he brought me my notebooks. I bought him drinks all night, and uh, uh, he didn't even want me to buy him a drink. I mean, he didn't want any—he didn't want any appreciation for it. He was just like, "Oh no, this, I did the right thing. I'm not—I'm not—I'm not. I didn't do this. I offered him a reward. It's like, man, I'll give you anything you want. It's like, no, no, no. And finally, he let me buy him a beer, and I think I talked him into 
letting him be buy him another drink or something. But I mean, it was just, that was it. I and uh, I wrote down his name because I was going to thank him on the record, and I lost it. Oh, <laughs> Goddamn road, I lost it. And uh, I would still love to like run into the guy and thank him again, you know. Many, many, many years ago, back when the earth was still cooling, Five Eights fan was broken into behind a club in Jackson, Mississippi called the Midnight Sun. We had played an early show and parked the van behind the club, and sometime just after sundown, someone took a brick and threw it through the window of the van and stole a bunch of our personal gear. And I lost over 100 cassette tapes, and I had amassed this collection of cassettes sleeping on people's couches and like staying up all night. Like I kept a bunch of blanks with me and if they had cool records, I would record it. And a lot of it was Afrobeat stuff and all the usual suspects, you know, King Sunny Ade, Fela Kuti, Femi Kuti, Chief Commander Ebenezer Obey. And like, I just loved all that Nigerian rock stuff, but also like field recordings, like someone had recorded an Ethiopian rock band playing on a street corner and the recording was like barely in stereo but I loved those recordings and man I'll never get them back I had that moment that everybody has when they've been robbed where you just run up and down the block and you look in every dumpster and every trash can and hope that someone was like oh these are all like BASF metal home recording tapes and just dumped them all but yeah, I never did find that stuff. So when Patterson told me the story that they took the backpack and dumped the notebooks and he got it back, it just felt like this enormous victory, this huge vindication of that crime. And I was just so excited for him because clearly there are at least two records that were saved by him getting those notebooks back. So I really love that story. You know, back in the 90s, like, Healthcare for musicians was mostly tea tree oil, and I hope this doesn't kill me. And um, even now, in the sort of what appear to be the dwindling days of the Affordable Care Act, is um, they try to kill as many poor people as possible by making it go away. Um, there were some really dark days for musicians uh, struggling with healthcare issues in the '90s and early 2000s. And Lincoln Barr had one of those health issues that won't kill you unless, of course, it's hand-in-hand hand with your own depression and anxiety issues, and it just feels like the entire world is piling on you, and it gets darker and darker. And somehow he managed to find his way into exactly the right doctor's office to get the help that he needed. How do you receive an act of kindness from a stranger? Wow. Um, I... There have been a lot, but I think that one that really stands out to me because it happened, it, it, it was in a dark time, a dark moment for me is um, when I was living in Seattle uh, and right when a lot of this stuff was starting to really come to bear, I had a time, I, I mean, this, I promise this is going somewhere, but uh, I I had I was dealing with this. Have you, do you know what angular chylitis is? No. It's when the corners of your mouth crack, like you have chapped lips or whatever, right? And the corners of your mouth crack, and they don't really they don't want to heal. Obviously, you use your mouth a lot for right. a lot of things, and um, once there's a wound there, right? Like uh, it, it's it's hard to get it to heal. Right. And I was dealing with that, um, and. It start and I was also feeling a lot of sort of existential uh, depression and uh, and the two weren't a good mix because you, you know you 
you got to face the world with that face every day. And if you already feel like you're kind of a worthless piece of garbage, that doesn't help. If you also feel like you can't eat or talk or <laughs> yeah, right. Or smile look like a fool. Yeah. Or smile. Right. Um, and it just started to really get me down and it felt like it was really like an outward manifestation of what was going on internally. And I finally broke down and I was like, I have to go see. And I went to my GP who's a wonderful person, but he wasn't really able to help at all. And I finally was like, I got to call a dermatologist and I don't care what it costs. Like I've got to get this figured out. So I called a couple and, uh, and they all were like, well, we can get you in in a couple of months or whatever. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm like, I need help. And so then I finally, I made a call and I called this doctor, Dr. Michael Scott, um, in the medical dental building in Seattle. And I hope and believe that he's still there. And he was like, yeah, we can get you in tomorrow. I'm like, wow. Okay. So I went down there and the medical dental building in Seattle is just really, it's really old. I mean, it, it, it's a very cl- classic kind of office building with there's uh, just these really narrow corridors and it's really dark and you don't really know quite where you're going. It's not like the, it's the opposite of the modern shiny kind of doctor, you know, complex. Um, and I went in this room and from the moment I was in there, I knew I was in the right place and they treated me with such kindness and respect. And it wasn't even, I mean, they were, they definitely wanted to, to heal me. Right. They definitely wanted to, to, to address the problem that I was there for, but it was so much more meaningful for me than that. Uh, and I could go on for a long time about that experience at, at Dr. Scott's office, but suffice to say that it, it saved me that day. You know what yeah. I mean? I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, they, they treated me like a whole person. Um, and, uh, and it, there, there was something mystical, <laughs> quite honestly, yeah. about the, whole, <laughs> the in, entire visit, um, that went so far beyond, you know, uh, the treatment of the symptom that I was there for. And I'll never forget it. Man, I remember touring with problems like that. It was just brutal. Like you'd get some, like at one point in the wintertime, my, my thumbs like started cracking open right there where the nail meets the side of my thumb. And, um, I've since found a lotion that'll fix that. But every night for a while we were playing Madison, Wisconsin and Milwaukee, Wisconsin and, and, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And when the cold, dry air was just like making my, my hands just crack open and the sweat as I would play would like run down into those deep cracks. And it was absolutely agony, Ben, and like there's this ethical argument you would have with yourself in the nineties. Like, do I go to the emergency room and get treatment and then just never pay the bill and just let them take a machete to my credit rating? Or, or do I like try to get on a payment plan or whatever? And it, the whole thing was just so unethical. And I, I can't imagine anyone who's not a healthcare executive being even remotely nostalgic for going back to that system. But like, uh, you know, a lot of things these days baffle me, but I just remember nearly dying from strep throat a couple of times or getting a stomach virus so bad that I like passed out from dehydration, but then not wanting to go to the hospital because I was worried that if I died there, it would cost my family so much money to deal with the medical treatment that I might bankrupt them. And like that excludes 
any kind of mental health care. You know, before Nucci Space came to Athens, like if you were struggling with that kind of stuff, man, you just you just either self-medicated with with drugs or you died. And um, I don't want to climb too far up on a soapbox about that now. I, I can tell you though that I've just known like a half dozen musicians who've been on tour eating Advils like candy because they had a tooth blow out, you know, and, and like they kind of get home to find some kind of public assistance dental plan to get a tooth yanked. Like it, it happened to my girlfriend who was on tour with us one time. It's a brutal system. And people that like try to paint the um, NHS and Britain or the Canadian healthcare system as somehow rationing health care. Like what the fuck do you think we're all doing? Like, you know, sitting at home with tea tree oil and Advil and, and prayer trying not to die. It's a, uh, <laughs> it's absurd. One of the, my guests who was really um, aware of how lucky he'd been to um, be in the hands of good healthcare workers was uh, Sterling Roy, the former drummer for the James Hall band. And um, he talked about, um, how kind and gentle the nurses had been when he was um, institutionalized for having a nervous breakdown. Received an act of kindness from a stranger. Well, <laughs> every hospitalization. Yeah. Nurses. Yeah. Nurses, dude. They're they are. They could do so much less. They really could. Considering what they're paid. Yeah. And every time I've ever had to be around a hospital, I've been like, I can't believe how kind you are. Nurses, my, my current ex-girlfriend is, is a registered nurse. Mm -hmm. She is ca capable of profound comfort mm -hmm. when she has the bandwidth for it. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, nurse, yeah, hospitalizations and nurses, especially in that context. Right. A lot of... Because psychiatric patients aren't easy to care for. Hell no. We're not. <laughs> Sometimes they're the least grateful patients. Mm-hmm. They'll say, yeah, they're detached. Right. You know, so some of them I've seen, yeah, I've seen some pretty... Gnarly shit. Nasty. Yeah. yeah but, you know. I, I got to say, there's a, there's a tiny bit of dark comedy in the phrase, uh, my current ex-girlfriend. <laughs> I'm sure Sterling would agree. Um, that was a great episode. I, I had to break it into two parts because we talked for a really long time. It was a really deep conversation. Sterling, at that time, was still going through some stuff, and I'm 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 happy to report to um to you guys that he's doing a lot better these days. Um, he's uh he's in a good place. My friend Richard Salino is a studio engineer living and working in New York City. Um, you imagine how talented you have to be to be a studio engineer, which is already a very competitive job, uh, and and do it in the greatest city in America. Um, he is uh, gifted with a truly incredible set of ears. He's a very good drummer, and he's also a cancer survivor. I pulled two parts out of Richard's interview because I wanted to sort of set the stage for the answer to the question, tell me a time you received that kindness from a stranger, by having you experience the other side of that, which is that there was a woman in the hospital when he first arrived after having a seizure from the brain tumor that he has now survived, who was not kind and he was in mortal terror. And then someone came along and 
and spoke the truth to him in the kindest way imaginable. Um, they, they did an x-ray and then subsequent scans and um, uh, they told me I had a brain tumor. And, what was that moment um, like? I, I, I don't, I'm, I don't even know how to explain what that felt like. Um, yeah. That, that period of time is a, a bit of a blur for me. Um, but I remember, I remember I was sitting in the ER and they gave us a room that, so for those of you who haven't been, been to an ER, um, you go in, you go through triage, they, they kind of figure out what's wrong with you on a, a surface level, and then they decide what they're going to do with you. And if it's something minor, um, at least in New York, they will give you, you know, a space in the hallway or, um, you know, some, some low priority space. If it's something serious, you get a room. And um, they gave me a room. And... I, at that point, I knew that something wasn't quite right. The, the time I had been in the ER before, um, they, they just kind of looked at me and they, they talked to me out in the hall and they were, you know, go home, you're fine. Um, this was not that. And so Genevieve and I are waiting uh, in this room in the ER and uh, a nurse came in and, and she said, you have a brain tumor. And it was very matter of fact. There was no other it was information. A nurse. It wasn't a doctor. Was that? It, was it was a nurse, a nurse. not a doctor. It was a nurse, yeah. Um, and she came in and she said, you have brain tumor. And I, I said, okay, um, what does that mean? Um, you know, am, am I going to die? Um, I remember asking that. I remember asking if I was going to make it through the night. Um, I, I just had no idea what that meant. Um, and her response to my questions was, I can't speak to that. Those were her literal words. I cannot speak to that. Um, which, when you're asking, am I going to die tonight, and someone says, I can't tell you, um, that's not what you want to hear. Um, I think almost any answer would have been better than that for me. Um, so that was, that was the most difficult part of the whole thing for me. Um, I remember um, keeping in mind the, the timeline here, I got engaged the day before, which was an absolute high point of my life. Um, right. and the very next day I was being told that I had a brain tumor and I might die. Um, and I, they left us. She, she went out of the room and, and that was, they left us to our thoughts for felt like a long time. Um, I don't think it was that long before someone else came in, but, um, that felt like an eternity. And, you know, I remember just did you guys, over and over. Did, did you guys talk? You oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember um, I just over and over saying I don't want to die to her. Um, that was, that's, that's what I remember of that. It's just this feeling of I, I don't want to die. Um, and I, thankfully, the, the next person who came in, uh, it was another nurse who came in to check on me, and I guess it was probably five minutes later. It felt like an hour, but I, I don't think it was that long. Um, and it went from probably the worst bedside manner to possibly the best. Um, he came in and he, he just said, you know, 
uh, I used to work in neurology, and if if they thought that this was serious, you wouldn't be sitting here right now. You would be in surgery. Um, so we don't have all the information. That's what we're going to find now. Um, but just sit tight and, uh, you know, hold on. And that's what we did. There's so much for me in that moment where Richard says to his sweet fiance, now wife, uh, I don't want to die. And that moment of just not knowing must have been absolutely terrifying. And then for someone to come in the door and say, hey, man, um, this isn't as serious as it could be. Or you'd already be in surgery. Let's just find out what's going on and we're going to fix this. Is such an amazing act of kindness. Richard Richard acknowledges it uh, when we finally get to the questions a little while later you received from a stranger um the the nurse that i mentioned who came in after um the first nurse left my room um that was that was profound to me the fact that he took the time to to recognize that i was suffering and that i was uh scared and didn't know what was going on he had no obligation to talk to me at all he came in to check my vitals and um he didn't have to say anything to me at all and he took the time to to sit down and and explain that you know this wasn't the end i just that story amazes me in so many ways just be the second nurse in the world like as we're in this weird holiday season where expectations are high and emotions are high and people are a little fraught like find ways to be kind if you can because sometimes it's the tiniest things Thor Harris is one of my heroes and he's just an absolute like commando of kindness. And um, when he was wrestling with his own suicidal ideation, there more than once he got off his bike. He used to ride his bike everywhere and laid down on the searing hot pavement in Texas and contemplated the void. At one point, and he talks about this in our interview earlier. He he laid down next to a snake that had been hit by a car, and he just lay there in kinship with this dead snake. Um, but another time, he was very near the end um, and laid down on the concrete of a bridge in Austin, and just a random passerby like started talking to him, and it saved his life you've received an act of kindness from a stranger um boy so much kindness um once i was uh i was on my way to this was uh this was Back in 92, I was not well yet, but I was kind of clawing my way back from my fir- first ever nervous breakdown. And and I was, I had set this deadline that if I'm not better in six weeks, I'm going to kill myself. And so I was on my way either to my, to my shrink's office or I was going to kill myself. And I was riding a bike and it was real hot and I stopped and again, laid down on the hot um, concrete on a bridge um, 
in Austin and this kid shows up I'm just laying there on the on the on this bridge and this kid shows up and just starts talking to me about having moved back to Austin from Houston he's just talking and it was just so uh I don't know something about that kid talking to me just pulled me out of my own murderous thoughts and um just sort of inspired me to ride my bike to my shrink's office and tell him I wasn't doing so well and instead of riding and jumping off of this really high bridge um so I don't you know I don't even know if that kid he certainly didn't know that that I was there like contemplating ending it all but um I was sure glad he showed up and just started just started rambling to me Thor is currently like one of the most positive funny sweet guys on the planet and um I really uh, appreciate that he's been so honest about his journey and um, willing to share his experience and what gives him strength and and what gives him hope to keep going. Because I think that um, if you've ever been sad and desperate enough to lie down in the sun next to a snake, like it's good to know that someone else who did it like got up and kept going and is now thriving and happy. There were a couple of chance encounters for guests of the show, um, sort of in the framework of uh, recovery, you know, and, and meetings. And um, they were just little things where someone said something kind of off the cuff, but it ended up like changing someone's life. Uh, I had Davey from the Dopey podcast on, uh, Dopey is an amazing podcast about, by his description, uh, drugs, drug stories, and dumb shit. And um, it's uh, that guy's had quite a journey. Um, and the first day of his journey, as it is now, began with someone saying something very simple to him. Tell me a time you received an act of kindness from a stranger. Um, act of kindness from a stranger. Um, uh, when I was at the 7.30 morning meeting, uh, first day there, this amazing man, painter from New Zealand, I never said two words to him. At the end of the meeting, he said, uh, I hope to see you here again tomorrow. Um, and when he said that to me, it changed my life in a way I, I can't even explain like I had never felt welcome in these places and just him, he was so cool and him saying it to me, it was just the, the biggest gift anyone could ever give me. Cause I went back every day after that. Uh, and it saved my life. Do you, you do you, are you still friends with him? Uh, no, I, uh, he got very sick. He's, uh, he was, I think he's in his nineties. Oh, and wow. when I moved to long Island, I stopped going to the seven thirty meeting. Yeah. Uh, I saw him at Katz's and I, and I gave him a free meal when I saw him. <laughs> uh, uh, he, he was a brilliant, brilliant, beautiful man. I think he's still alive, but he's very old and sick. 
and I never, I never had his number. I was never, I never became close with him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just he was, he was kind to me. You know, I, he was the kind of person that you didn't want to invade them because they were, they were. He was like a celebrity, and I didn't want to like push myself onto him. And he wasn't like I asked him to sponsor me. He was like, I don't sponsor anybody who has less than five years. Wow. So I was like, I gave him his his, his birth. You know what I mean? His face. Davis invited me to New York to come be on the Dopey Podcast, and I really need to do that. i got to find a few nickels to rub together and catch a cheap flight and go hang out with that guy. Man, I really like him a lot. Um, Mike Mantioni from my own band, 5-8, um, talked about uh, a very similar experience um, on his journey out of mental illness and uh, insanity and addiction. And Sometimes it's just as simple as having someone listen to where we've been and not judge it you know mike clawed his way up out of a schizophrenic breakdown and um you know it was just somebody at at like a fast food restaurant after the meeting being kind to uh give him the hope to like stay in it and 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 keep trying to get better about a time you received an act of kindness from a stranger this is the hardest one for me um so many, so many acts, um, so many things. Um, one of them that always comes back to me is this one guy, I never met him before since, you know, just talked to me after a meeting one time and I was busted, you know, yeah. I was in that first year and I was just super depressed. Mm-hmm. He just listened to me at the Wendy's. The, the meeting after the meeting. The meeting after the meeting. Yeah, you know what I mean. He didn't. He didn't. I never saw him again. Was this he Long spent Island hours? No, this was down here. Yeah, this was down in uh, Athens. Um, uh, one of the guys, um, who was a stranger at that point, but became a good friend, was Jim Ferrat. Uh, yeah, he came into my life at one point early on when he was still managing Pylon and spent some time with me that really saved my life. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. You know those people that just came in and did stuff, and you're just like, really? Yeah. I learned that maybe you don't have to spend a whole lot of time with somebody to give them a a, a gift, because I held on to those short, you know, sometimes more than anything else. Yeah. That interview is really special to me because I've I've spent off and on maybe thirty years in vans with that guy playing shows, going all over the world, and um, I still find out things I didn't know about him, which is kind of amazing. This last excerpt is from the Crash Night interview that is probably most important to me is number ten with my friend Evan. Evan went through every kind of therapy, every kind of SSRI, exhausted all of those ended up doing electroshock where they shock your brain to try to squeeze a few more drops of serotonin out of it, which also eventually became ineffective. And there was a moment there where Evan just didn't have any hope. And the doctor started doing the ketamine infusion thing, and now he's doing the ketamine nasal spray, and he's in good place. And I'm I'm super excited that he's doing better. I've said before that Evan's sadness is so much like my own. It's it's crazy staring into his darkness because it looks so much like my darkness. And also the way that he feels about himself when he's sad is so much like the way I feel about myself when I'm sad. And I 
feel like episode 10 is so important because I was sitting in a room with a guy who I think of as a hero and he was talking about the way that he feels about himself and it felt like my internal monologue where I and about how I feel about myself and it's Christmas time it's dark outside today was the shortest day of the year it's the middle of the night now I'm in a quiet house surrounded by snow and I feel okay but I know that there are times when I don't and it's good to know for me that someone who I love and care for as much as Evan um, can have the same kind of thoughts and get better and be okay it makes me realize that I can be okay and that we can help each other out of this thing. And here he's talking about ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, where they shock you. You've seen it uh, dramatized in film and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and other places. And um, it's it's disruptive. You know, it, it it's exactly as, as disruptive for your thought process as you would expect to have someone to put electrodes uh, on your head and shock you. And it was very hard for Evan to... Um, feel good about who he was as he was going through that because he had to depend on so many people the kindness of so many people to just get there and get home and I think it was really important for us to talk about it so he would know how much it matters to all of us that he'd be okay. I went and made, we uh, made an appointment at UNC Hospital mm-hmm. to talk to them about ECT and mm-hmm. went to that. And what's that like? It's tough. Um, it's scary and weird every time and as someone who um, sees most of this as just yet another personal failing it is a constant reminder of the impact your shittiness has on the people who love you enough to do anything for you including take you to this over and over again I mean the hundreds at this point of doctor's appointments that Nicole has driven me to and from because I will either be under anesthesia or otherwise and my friends bandmates and sitting in a shitty waiting room watching daytime TV while I am in back and does it help it did and it did or it does it it did help me okay but um, you're no longer I'm not doing ECT okay because after a while it didn't work yeah and I did a lot of treatments um and that also that is profound you know that, memory effects um you know that your friends and bandmates we they do these things because they love you i know i know and that's not conditional right i mean that's mm-hmm. the thing that we learned from that narcissistic parent right that their, yeah, that love, their love can be withdrawn right and that's that's the thing they teach us, but I can tell you, you know, 
from experiences with the adult friendships that I've developed with my bandmates and my wife, because my wife is, is really close friends too, mm-hmm. that the true nature of the affection that we have for each other and the, and the bonds that we form is that it's not conditional and it's not dependent upon um, like it's not their feelings about you are so independent of the way that you're feeling about yourself like yeah well part of how depression is manifested in me at least is um, a narcissistic insistence by my brain that I know what everyone else is thinking yeah. I mean, I had to know what they were thinking before I answered when I was a kid, you know, yes. to get it right. Right. Like, so I know there's a giant pain in the ass and why can't having get a shit together. And what is this treatment number 55? And, um, and at the same time, intellectually, I know that that's not how it works. I know that I know yeah. that I would turn over a train for any of my friends if that would help a little bit, you know, five bucks to park in the UNC hospital parking deck is not something they're going to hound me for later. Right. It's because I couldn't find my wallet because I can't walk. (laughs) Um, Yes. It's not a big deal, but it's just a constant reminder of your brokenness and you are not seen as a hero. You're not rolling down through that lobby in a wheelchair as a survivor. You're not triumphing over anything. I mean, that's the that's the 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 insane voice in your head that doesn't love you that's telling you that you're not a hero that you're not there's part of that there's also just an invisibility to this disease a uh, invalidity to it a yeah we gotta like we gotta we gotta outlive this stupid boomer concept that yeah. we're all fucking and randy and superheroes that are the star of our own little movie because it's it's fucking killing people I talked to Evan last night and he seems like he's doing pretty good. Um, you know, he finally was able to break into that whole nasal spray trial that a lot of people who listen to this show are trying. And I'm, I'm really encouraged by how it's helping people. Um, I got a buddy in Texas who's uh, doing really well because of it. And um, he keeps me posted. I'm really grateful for Evan. I'm really grateful for you. Um, I'm really grateful for this community that's sprung up around this podcast. I feel like we help each other out and lift each other up. And I cannot wait to get back out on the road when Pinky Doodle Poodle gets back from Tokyo. I should know something about that really soon. I can't wait to come to your town. I can't wait for us to get coffee. I want to hang out. I want to see how you're doing. I want to see your band play. Um, I'm really stoked about the future right now. Um, it's been a great year, as I said before, and I think 2020 is going to be even better. You'd be doing me a tremendous favor if you uh, talked about the podcast a little bit on your social media, if it's helping, if you enjoy it. If you have ideas for guests, uh, you can email me at crashandride at protonmail.com or just leave a message on the Crash and Ride Facebook page. All right, well, that's our annual Not Christmas Crash and Ride episode. Um, I realize it was a little dark, but let's be honest, um, 
If you're not feeling a little dark at the holidays, are you really the target audience for this podcast? <laughs> thanks for listening. Um, thanks to Jake Kreger, our erstwhile producer. He gives me show notes after every show. If this podcast is better now than it was the first time you ever heard it, well, that's due to Jake. Thanks to Gene Wolfolk and the band The Powder Room. All of the music you heard on today's episode is from The Powder Room's album, Curtains, which you can hear at thepowderroom.bandcamp.com. They're an amazing band from Athens, Georgia, whose music deserves to be heard. You should go check it out. Throw them a couple of bucks. Download that record and the record that I played on, which is called Lucky. Uh, Also a very good record. Um, Powder Room doesn't really play shows anymore. Somebody asked me that the other day, but, you know, Gene Wolfolk plays with the band Plaque Marks from Philadelphia. He also is the lead guitar player for T. Hardy Morris, uh, a brilliant singer-songwriter from Athens, Georgia, who might be described as, like, Southern Gothic. Uh... There's elements of Flannery O'Connor in his work and elements of uh, maybe A.A. Bondi or Little Nick Cave. Like, there's something um, beautiful and brilliant about T. Hardy's voice and his his songwriting is also really brilliant. I just can't say enough good things about T. Hardy Morris. And he's got this brilliant left-handed guitar player and Gene Wolfolk on stage with him just, like, breaking your brain. He's so talented. Thanks to Heil Audio for these two microphones. I got a great deal on a pair of PR40s from them. I used to use a PR40 in the studio on snare drum and kick drum and sometimes bass cabinet, and they've turned out to be really great broadcast mics, too. If you want to make your podcast sound better, I highly suggest looking into the Heil PR40. So, yeah, if you've listened this far, I know you're one of the real crash and ride heads, so I want to, like, say to you directly, like, hang in there. I know Christmas is tough. I'm in a pretty good place right now. I'm surrounded by my wife's big happy family and and they're very loving and it's it's good to be here and i wish the same for you until we speak again though take care of yourself be kind to yourself ask for help if you need it go see live music support your favorite band and remember loud guitars save lives (laughs) 